Hello and welcome to Pre-Published. I'm Sophia. Emma Darwin is the author of two historical novels and a guide to writing historical fiction. Her latest book, intriguingly, is the story of not being able to write a novel about her famous family. I got to know Emma through her blog, This Itch of Writing. She investigates the craft of writing in real depth, giving plentiful illustrations of what she means, and I usually end up pointing my students there at some point, so it was great to be able to talk to her in person for this episode. Well, I say in person, you know what I mean. Emma was an associate lecturer at the Open University and has a PhD in creative writing. She runs popular courses and workshops, including Self-Editing Your Novel with Debbie Alper. The next online course of that starts in March 2021, if you're interested. I had an orderly list of questions to ask her, but as soon as we started talking about writing, we ended up going wherever the subject took us, from free writing to beta readers, psychic distance, showing and telling, and why rewriting is what it's all about. We recorded this episode in November 2020. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, Emma. Welcome to Prepublished. Hello, Sophia. Can you describe where you're recording from today? I am recording from my study which I sometimes think of as my office, um, which actually is, I hate to say it to people who write on the corner of the kitchen table, but it is the largest room in the house. And so it's got all my books and all my everything and also all the piles of gas bills to pay. And at the end of a working day, I can shut the door and leave it behind. Oh, that's wonderful. Do you, do you have a view from it or do you deliberately not have a view? I have a very unexciting view of my uh nice Victorian road in my nice Victorian suburb, uh, along with the gap where the World War Two uh, bombs took out some of the nice Victorian houses. Um, but actually, I look, the monitor is, is in the blank space between the two windows. So um, it is quite helpful for focusing. Yes, I, I found the same thing, actually. Yes, my, my computer in the shed faces a blank wall. <laughs> And above the blank wall um, is a shelf with the files of all my unpublished books and screenplays and things, which yes. is just a reminder to keep going and work a bit hard. <laughs> yes, keep going. But also that those are important too. I think it's fair. I think it's, it's, there's always a risk that we feel that our only existence as a writer is the stuff that actually gets as far as the bookshelf, uh, the bookshop shelves. Yeah, yeah. Um, and actually those, those ones that were unpublished for whatever reason are, 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 are a very important part of your, of your writing life, if not your author's life if that makes sense I completely agree it's, it's interesting when people say how many books have you written and I think well do I include them or not it's kind of like is it 11 yeah. is it 15 but I mean to me it's 15 because I really wrote them and they were very long and they took me a long time <laughs> yes. even and if also, they never appeared anywhere yes and, and also uh, the books that followed would not have been how they are if you hadn't done that I mean I when when my first novel the mathematics of love came out and people said you know is it your first novel and I said well it's my first published novel but but I I actually had six under the bed or I had three oh, under the bed you? depending on which way you counted it because actually you know unpublished book number three came out of me looking at unpublished book number one again and thinking oh I know why that didn't work you know now I know how now I know what wasn't working Mostly because I'd written unpublished book number two in between. And you know, <laughs> yes, every, every yes, project, yes. you learn something from every project. Every project sets you a different set of problems that you have to solve. Um, completely I, I find it fascinating that having solved them I, each time I think oh phew I can do that now and then yeah. my brain doesn't want to write that kind of book again it wants no, to write a different no, kind no. with a whole new set of problems that I don't know how to solve well exactly because actually if you're not solving problems what are you bothering you know why, why are yes. you where where is the driver to do it if you know how to do it I've I've certainly ha had 
projects, at least to the point of thinking, oh, gosh, that's a tasty idea and sort of taking it for a walk to see what I can do with it. And 20 minutes in, I think, oh, yeah, I know how I do that. Yeah, yeah, no, I do it with that narrator, that voice, that person. Ugh, can't be bothered. Um, and, oh, yeah, no, yeah because it's when I think, gosh, that would be so amazing. How on earth would I do it? This is, of course, a conversation to make one's agent very nervous. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, but at that point, you just tell yourself, I have an agent. I'm yeah, already several, yeah. several steps along the process. Yes. And also, I mean, actually, agent, you know, good agents know all about the writing writers and their stuff. And, and they're very good at saying, yeah, you know, just write it and we'll sort it out later because they know that they, the driver for it has to come from that kind of creative excitement. Yeah. Or and I, I talk book. about the, the dirty draft with mm -hmm. students a lot, which is the just, yeah, yeah the get it down, have the clay yes. to mould yes. later yes. into something. Yes. Yes. But without the clay, you just won't have anything to play with. And uh, yeah, it's no, done. Could, and I, yeah. I, I try and encourage people to write to the end because writing a beginning, a middle and an end is part of the process. I think. Yes, yes, I think I mean, that's right. Having said that, I, I know some very good writers who don't write that way. Mm -hmm. And so I, I mean, one of the things I'm always trying to do on the, on, on this, it's writing the blog is, is to draw on what I know of other writers process as well, so that I can offer anyone reading the itch different possibilities because yeah, I'm a, I'm a dirty first draft, shitty first draft merchant on the whole, a kind of hurl it down and see what you've got and then work it, sort it out later writer. But I do know, I know writers who write out of order and then stitch it altogether i know one very good very well regarded novelist who writes it out of order and then strings a piece of string across her office chops up all the bits of paper and kind of does a sort of washing line thing to brooding at it to get all the bits in the right order you know um and then actually by the time she's done that she then she edits it all together so there's lots of different ways that um, is wonderful. But, which is I'm so glad you said that because <laughs> that is one of the reasons, the main reason I would say why I wanted to do the pre-published podcast is for, to give students a chance to hear writers disagreeing with each other. Yes. <laughs> no, I don't do it that way. I've yes. never done it that way. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, well, and I, I, you know, in a sense, it does, it, the only time it's, a, it's an active disagreement really is if someone says you shouldn't do do it X way. And of course, yes. you know, I think, I think there's lots of different ways to do it. I think one reason for spreading out you know putting out lots of different ways is that an awful lot of writers at some level will recognize the right process for them if somebody exactly. suggests it I always remember yes. the first ever one of the very few writing courses I did uh, which was being done by an author called Mary Flanagan and she said oh I always write first drafts longhand and I suddenly thought oh yes of course because I always brainstorm longhand and to yeah, suddenly so to realise, I. I mean, you know, I think anyone who, when they're trying to work out anything from the right, uh, the right order to do a journey into, to trying to work out anything, you know, to put something together, anyone who reaches for a pen and paper in those circumstances should should consider reaching for a pen and paper when they're first drafting a novel, because a first draft is basically a monster brainstorm of, you know what is this story what who are these people what is this place how do i get it how do i transmit it yeah and so yeah. so mary, mary mary saying oh yes right first draft longhand it complete i knew it was the right answer even before i'd sort of tried it see what I mean? 
Yes. Well, yeah. I, I mean, again, I don't do that, but I do write my notes longhand. And, yep. and there's a different speed between yes. writing and typing and a different yes. attitude to editing because you can't cut and paste in the same yes. way. Yes, yes, yes. And, and you can do squiggly lines, which I haven't you... mastered doing on computers yet. No, I, th- I think that whole thing of, hang on, this bit, big circle arrow should be there, yes. big circle, yes. you know. That is so, it's so quick and intuitive because it's it's bodily. Yes. It's actually, it's it's a physical thing reflecting your thought and anyone who's ever you know uh, taught I don't know taught dyslexics in the way that often engaging other bits of other kinds of senses the physicality of things helps helps letters and words and stuff and I actually think we're all like that you know we're all that sort of creature really and um, I think it's enormously helpful as you say much easier in pen and paper also you you uh, you the pen tracks your thoughts so you can see that change of mind you can see the edit, you know, you you can see what you've done, and and I think going back to type up is an enormously useful editing process. The first sort of let's slap it into shape, see what we've got. Um, Isn't it just is, yes? Is, is so useful. I mean, it has to be said for all this, you've got to be a pretty reasonable typist. <laughs> At least I think it's very <laughs> helpful if you are. Yeah. Um. I and and. Uh, and you know it it doesn't suit everybody but i think it's really worth thinking it's certainly worth thinking of of a first draft as a brainstorm also lets you off the hook doesn't have to be perfect doesn't have to be right you know nobody thinks that that brainstorm of the of the of the letter you're about to write to the council complaining that you're you know you rough draft it brainstorm it and then you get in it all nobody thinks that rough draft has to be perfect and and uh, so you're free to imagine you know free to follow your nose and goes where it goes and you know let's not worry about the spelling now or the you know, or anything, and I think that's also very important. It it it's freeing to say. Yes, this is I, a I dirty do. Draft. I I was taught by um by Heather Dyer how to do a free writing exercise. She, she's yes. lovely at leading workshops and things. Yeah. And um this this was a, a five minute quantity not quality yes um you have to write if you can't think yep. of what to say then you have to write the last thing you wrote and keep, repeat it yep. until the words yes, come yes, back. Yes. Yes. And they always and then do. You have and they yep. always do. And you have to find a few words within that. And then the interesting yes. thing is then take those and do it again. Yes. And it's for me, it really brings the writing process to the fore of exploring an idea through the writing yes. of it and the yes. idea yes. changing with the writing, which yes. is just a really good thing to know that that's what we do. Yes, yes. And that we actually don't always pr- think we do. No, and, and exactly. And the process of uh, having to put one word after another, actually, without you even having to try, sort of produces some stuff. And there are the diamonds and the dust. And as you say, then you then you develop. And I think I, I I use it a lot with I use it a lot with myself and also with students. And and sometimes I I know actually the same writer who did the washing line um, talking about she does it at the beginning of every writing session and she compares it to that thing when you put the dishwasher or the washing machine on and they spend the first minute it spends the first minute kind of pumping out the dirty water from last time right that's such an interesting image and, I love and, 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 it, and it gets rid of whatever was in your head when you sat down but you can also use it for exploring character you know you can have an anchor sentence at the anchor phrase at the beginning you know john is and whatever and then see where that goes you very good for kind of close psychic distance stream of consciousness um you know, when you're trying to evoke violence or sex or, you know, a strange situation where the, the character's quite boggled, I think it can be very good to free write a, you know, she walked into the room and, and just let it rip and see what you get. Because 
chances We're are you'll talk get about something psychic weird. Distance yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> we need to. I'm usually I talking about psychic distances. You will have realised. I know. I tell my yeah. students about it and get them yeah. to go to your blog and find out more about it. Um, yeah, I mean, I was about 10 minutes ago, I was going to say, I want to talk to you about self-editing and the mm. details of the craft, because I know this is something you, you think about and write yeah. about. And yeah. this itch of writing is, is such a wonderful blog to, to explore that. And, you know, and here we are, and we've been talking for 10 minutes or whatever it is <laughs> before I've even got to that, because yeah. it's just such a natural thing. Um, I wanted to ask you quickly, have you seen uh, Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You? No, I haven't. Oh, it's, I mean, I, I just, I don't know anyone who's, who's watched it and, and not raved about it as a work of genius. Um, one of the things I I love is that, you know, it starts off with a, a woman who is trying to write a novel and can't. She's stuck. And she's desperately <sighs> pretending to her yeah. agent that she isn't stuck. Mm. And then as the episodes progress, I mean, it's about so many things. Um uh, you know, it's about race and control of your body and living in London and, and all sorts of things. But one of the things that it's about is creativity. And I, and I yeah. love seeing her bedroom as it all starts to come together. And the ideas are on post-it notes, coloured post-it notes around her walls. And you, you see this book physically come together yes, as ideas yes, in her yes. head. And it's a really wonderful look at the creative process and she went through I can't I have 175 drafts in my yeah. mind I can't be right but she yeah she really really worked would, on, wouldn't, on this wouldn't, thing wouldn't surprise me at all yes and I, th I think it's I mean actually it is all in the editing and I think that's something that well it's something the beginners often don't realize they're locked into this feeling that the first draft ought to be as close to the final draft as it can be because that's what we're taught at school you know that's the assumption at school yeah. even even you know at least with the whole coursework idea you know my, my children's um you know have a better sense of how you can improve stuff than I ever did at school when you know it was a sort of sudden death essay if you had time at the end you nipped back and checked the spellings you know but that was about it but um I think one of the things that people often don't realize is that is the enormous difference you can make. I mean, the the online, the six-week online course, Self-Editing Your Novel, which I co-teach with Debbie Alper, which which has been going, oh, I can't remember how long it's been going, seven or eight years. And um, some of our early, you know, early groups have, have, have one of them, has, half the group are now published and one of those has sold a million copies. I think the, the thing that people often don't realise is that the editing process, it, it People tend to think that it's about commas and spellings and, and maybe about improving the characterization or something like that. But mm -hmm. I, I always think one of my favorite definitions of an editor um, and, and what an editor does, because it can be quite diff difficult to explain, and indeed what it is, what's happening when you get a, a, you know, a traditional book deal and you get some really serious editorial uh, you know, development, which I've certainly had and is brilliant, um, is that an editor is, the, is someone who helps you to write the book you thought you'd already written yes absolutely um, which is absolutely and of course the first stage in self-editing is is you trying to write the book that you thought you'd already written and so you 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 have you you kind of look at everything and f make it work better um and you need that sort of distance and it can be very very helpful to have beta readers or the you know your 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 course mates you know or whatever um and i think it it can be hard, particularly for people who the, for the, whom the excitement of writing is the wonderful, glorious, mad, creative dream at the beginning, and and the editing process can feel dreary, or because they have a very 
active, um, furious kind of inner teacher sitting on their shoulder telling them being picky about their grammar only they're not they're they're worried about their grammar but they don't actually know how it should be right or whatever you know Mm -hmm. it it can feel it it can feel as if it's very uh dry and and all about correcting and ticks and marks and you know that kind of thing and of course actually what is is it's more like growing a plant you know it's like growing a a slightly wonky looking seedling that's looking slightly limp tied to its stake you know and feeding it and 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 trimming it and plucking it and and helping it to get big and big and suddenly you realize it's a dahlia or whatever it is you probably tell i'm not a gardener um uh, but and i think that's that's the thing that um is is very exciting about editing I do also know readers who prefer it who hate the hate the kind of effortful hurl it first down you know, get mm-hmm. it first down, find that incredibly... I find first drafts incredibly hard work, very exciting, but just, you know, you are making something out of nothing and that's yeah, hard that work. empty page feeling. Yeah. Yes, I think, I, I think the way our education system works doesn't help people understand this, this sort of... Uh, process of sort of constant reinvention of what it is that you're working on I mean my my son's at union and he was talking about you know the way people are writing essays there and they start off by having to sort of teach themselves the subject and then write this essay on something they feel very unconfident about and then then they they talk to um to the lecturer about it or the tutor and and they're told all this other extra stuff and it becomes really fascinating. Um, and then, and they go away really inspired, but they've written the essay <laughs> and it's been marked. <laughs> yes, yes. And actually the second essay would have been the essay. Yes, but sadly, yes. you know, the system doesn't have time for, for them to go back and do that. No, I, th- um, I think that's But we that's do right. as novelists, yeah, that's do, kind yes. of what we, where, yes. where our And, where and our it does a bit with the dissertations, you know, the, the, the kind of later ones. I mean, I, I, yes. my sense is that most places they would assume that a tutor would see at least one draft of a dissertation before the final thing that gets submitted. So that's something. But it's also what your mates are, are for. I mean, you know, it, it, it can be, it, it, some of it is, some of the, use of a beta reader isn't that the beta reader such as a tutor knows more than you do it's just that the fact that they're not you <laughs> and they come to it relatively neutral and and they can see you know they they can give you feedback about how it appears I mean as a teacher hopefully I do tend to know a little bit more than my students and my mentees mm. but I also know that one of my jobs is simply to be a representative reader yeah you know exactly. to, to, to say this you know quite often when I'm you know writing on a script it'll say something like this was the point at which I started wanting something to happen. You know, that's not <laughs> yes. about grammar. That's not about me saying, right, I think we need to wrangle the psychic distance a bit differently here. You know, That's just about me and, being And you do write very eloquently on, on commas, but I quite agree. That's not where it starts. I, I mean, can, I think you've captured yeah. something that, that I, I like to encourage students to do. I mean, we're, we're going to the, to the end of my questions for you, Emma. We're, we're darting about the place, but I guess I wanted to talk to you about the writing groups that often come out of writing courses and the fact yeah. that students do have each other. And I think... Uh, go on, correct me if, if you don't agree, but I think there can be a right way and a wrong way of peer review. And for yes. me, what I mean about that is that the right way is this is how I responded to it, which is just what you were saying. Yes. This is where I got lost. This is the bit that I adored. Yeah. This is the bit that I really, really resonated with me. Mm. This is the bit that I found utterly confusing. Yes. And then you as the writer go away and go, oh, okay, I didn't expect yeah. you to yeah. say that. But now that you've said it, <laughs> okay. I will go and think about yes. it. I, will go there. I, may, I may not to... do what you, I may not do yeah. what you, but you want. I, th- I think, I think, um, I think that's absolutely true. 
Um, I think the, I mean, for me, the core editing process is enormously helped if you separate problem finding from problem solving. Yes, exactly. This is, this is why I, I spend a lot of time suggesting to people that they reasonably often through the through the right the process of writing a piece they print out and work on hard copy because it helps you to respond to your own work like a reader and you take a pen and mm. you mark your readerly responses mm. um i mean obviously if you see a typo and you know how it should be spelled then you correct that because that you know why not but you don't you try and read like literally at the sort of speed and in the place where you'd normally you know take take the hard copy leave the desk go and sit on the sofa um Read it like a reader. And if something is a bit read, read it quite slow, fast in a read way. it quite fast. And one thing to help you read fast is don't stop and try and solve problems. Yes. Just log but, that but mark a problem where they are. There. Mark where they yeah. are. Say this. This is a bit slow, or I do, You know, I'm. I'm. It doesn't sound like her, or you know. With, I obviously work with a lot of historical fiction writers, and you know, very often I'll I'll be putting period language. I don't know. It just jarred a bit. You know, have a think about that. That kind of thing. Um, and then problem solving is is when you go back and you tackle those and I think one of the problems often with workshops is those two things get confused um yes. and and someone yes, says I, I didn't you know I I didn't I I didn't really I wasn't convinced by her doing this meaning a character I think she would have done that yes and the I mean you might be absolutely bang on I mean there are always times in a workshop when you stare at the person who's just said that thought bloomin' why didn't I think of that of course but equally it the fact that a reader said, I didn't believe she'd do this is important feedback. But what you do with it, it might be that they're suggested about what she ought to be doing is wrong. They haven't got mm. the character. That character wouldn't do that. It might be that you haven't written what she does in a way that makes it believable. And you should go back to the to the writing of it and tackle that. Rather than changing what she does, you change how you write it. Um, and, you know, yes. and those are all your decisions. Um, but people tend to you know the feedback tends to come or it's you know you have to think of their suggestion i think she should do this as an illustration rather than an answer if you see and, what, and I mean. what a good professional editor does i found is is a similar thing yes so the the series of notes that you get time after time after time <laughs> till, till it starts to sort of cohere is is much more about questions yeah and and never certainly in in early drafts um redrafting for you never that no. which is no, incredibly no, no. yes yes but just yes ob observations and questions and then from that yes. we, we work yes. on it ourselves and hopefully so it I comes from a deep understanding of the book and so you know i've yeah. had some fantastic editing it's it's absolutely you know on you know if, if if that isn't the perfect solution to the problem they've identified then it gets your brain going in a way that makes you think oh you know but yes of course i could do you know whatever and, and you're away and it's like gold dust that kind of editing when you get it yeah i mean i think for me um it, it's it's one of the reasons Lee Child is such a good writer mm. is that he he writes as a reader, which I find really fascinating, yeah. you know, yeah. with, with no plan, but just yeah. constantly thinking, oh, as a reader, what, what would I want to know more about at yeah. this point? I think very few of us can <laughs> can do that. You've, you've written The Mathematics of Love mm. and A Secret Alchemy. And I mean, do you think of yourself as a historical novelist? Well, I... I say that's what I am because it's what makes sense to the book trade. Um, but actually, I, I don't think that I write historical fiction. I think that I oh. write novels about history, if that makes oh, any sense. Um, In, so what's the difference? Well, I th t to me, the difference is that, I mean, historical fiction basically is a novel set in a time before our own. There are various different, you know, 
definitions. Um, I th for for for, uh, for writerly purposes, I think the most useful definition is is Margaret Atwood's, which is a novel set in a time before the the writer came to consciousness, because that mm -hmm. embodies the real process. Um, you know, if, if if my daughter wrote a novel set in 1990, that would be historical fiction because she was born in 93. <laughs> wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't really be for me, um, though it might be if if the whole point of the novel was to illuminate a time from the past. But basically, wouldn't be because I remember it as an adult. Um, yeah. Uh, whereas, for and so that's kind of covers an awful lot of things, um, but one of the things that my fiction always seems to be doing and usually by way of some kind of dual timeline or or or, or there being two different narrators or something they always seem to also be exploring this business of change over time which is what history is you know history is the yeah. study of change over time essentially as a discipline and so i'm always always seems to be a matter of writing a novel so that you have that sense of things being different that that things then you know, two different kinds of then are all both different from each other and different from now and, and that sort of thing. And so that's why I think I I think of myself as writing novels about history. But that isn't a good uh, soundbite or bookshop label. So I tend just to go with, yes, I write historical fiction. <laughs> <laughs> I know that, is it, is it on your website, you uh, you have a um, a list of types of historical novelists that uh, somebody might want to be, which I thought was really very interesting. Do you yes. want to write about a time yes. when there were there were sort of um, more constraints and therefore breaking the rules was more uh, more exciting? Yes, that I think kind of I think there's a post in the H and, and actually I go into more detail because I was uh, commissioned to write a book about how to write historical fiction for um, by John Murray for the you know the Teach Yourself series and yes. uh, about getting started in writing historical fiction. And I actually, it was a fascinating thing to write because, it, you know, it's a series, so there's a certain way that they want all the creative writing books to work. Um, but within that, you, you you know, you as the author have to think really hard. This is my, Somebody might buy this book and just want to work all the way through. Um, and they might be new to writing altogether, or they might be not mm -hmm. at all new to writing, but very new to writing historical fiction and just wanting a conversion course, as it were. And I realised that the first thing that you need to think about is why do you want to write history and not now? You know, why? What? What is your reason? And there are loads of loads of very different reasons. And so, uh, yeah, I was fascinated. Yeah, as somebody who's I, I'm sort of doing it, but it mm. wouldn't count by your definition mm. because the books I'm writing are set in 2016, 17. Okay, yeah, but well, to some extent, we we all are writing historical fiction in the sense that we're writing stories about things which have happened but yes sorry go on yes yeah. well I mean I'm really glad I didn't try and make them contemporary because of course anybody setting their book in 2020 but writing it in, uh, is in trouble for example is, yes is in trouble. <laughs> and, and so but I mean unfortunately for me I have to say I mean you know setting book two in exactly four years ago in the autumn of 2016 I thought well that'll be completely fine what happened then and then I thought oh okay <laughs> the autumn of 2016 was fairly stressful yes. um yes. So I've just been reliving all the things that I I kind of um, was was living through in the process yes. of, of writing yes. that, but yes. I mean, I I am you know of, of the list that you give of historical mm. writers, I am kind of trying to shed more light on a famous yes. character yes. by sort yes. of investigating yes. their psyche. So it was, it was nice to be able to oh okay, yes. there's a that's box what you're there doing. that I can yes. tick. Well, and I think I mean I'm that's doing. a huge part of it. You know, an awful lot of of you know 
reasons for writing historical fiction are about investigating the past either as you say a famous you're getting inside a famous historical character who's outside we know well i do know people who assume that that's what you're doing with historical fiction and i think that's a huge mistake because some of the great yes. fiction isn't doing that I agree. Um, yeah. but equally it's a very natural um it's a sort of natural and also of course there's all the investigation of 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 the lives that aren't famous you know history from below finding out what it was like to be a woman or a servant or a slave or you know or whatever and exploring that in the imaginative way that 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 one can writing fiction which isn't always available to historians because their rules of what they can read into things and what they can say are, are, are you know they're a completely different set of rules that they work by yes yeah that's, that's of course that's why I love doing it as a novelist rather than a historian yeah, because yes yeah. exactly where they have to stop is where I start so 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 many ways to investigate history yeah. and and as you say you've you've written non a non-fiction book about doing that mm. um but I, I mean, yes, I discovered you really through this itch of writing, which is the blog that we've we've referenced sort of various times, and um, and I was I was looking you up obviously before we chatted today because I didn't know where your experience that is so obvious in the blog came from. And before I forget to say this, the thing I particularly like about this itch of writing is that you constantly give examples. So you're <laughs> one of the things that I want to talk to you about is yeah. is showing and telling, but yeah. you're very good at showing <laughs> what you've told us <laughs> is an important thing and, and giving us examples of um of different ways of something. Yeah. Something yeah. being good, good actually yes. in different ways according to how you want to according use to what that you're trying to do. Yes. Because yeah, well exactly. I feel very strongly that whenever I hear somebody talking about writing saying you shouldn't do x i almost would take a bet that i can produce an example of a time when it would be exactly what you should do yeah well I mean, um, the, the, the obvious sort of classic that of you know this um goes around in sort of literary circles is you must never start with the weather and uh, then just yes. <laughs> I think Lee Child tries to start every single book with the weather just, just to make a point. Just to make a point. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, why not? Um, and well, I can, yeah, exactly. I can think of reasons when um, when it, it would be perfect. I think, you know, all, all of those things, there are no rules. There are so much no rules. I think there are, there are tools. Yeah. You know, and, and very often it's not that you should, you know, show, don't tell. It's that you should understand them both so that you can use the one that's right for what you're trying to do you know learn your yes. tools it's not exactly. a case of don't i mean i'm a relatively law-abiding soul um in in real life so maybe that's why I, i'm so enraged by the whole you have to know the rules before you can break them you know because i don't see why uh, you know any you should do what makes sense but you do have to you know if you learn your tools you'll know which to use yeah, I mean, I, I often liken it to baking, that there are recipes that just work. You know, if, if you combine equal amounts of eggs and yeah, sugar and yeah, flour yeah. and butter, you'll end up with a cake. And you so end it's up a with really a cake. Good, good way yeah, of doing it. Yeah. Um, now, an instinctive cook could easily work that out for themselves. And then a yeah, creative cook will instantly start adding other things yes. and taking things yeah. out and yeah. trying it with almond flour instead and yeah. all of that kind of thing. Um, but um, but if you are someone who is struggling with just concept of baking, being told do this to start with, I yes, think it, yes. it can be really helpful to. Oh, it can it can be, and I hand. think I think a recipe to hand. But in a sense, a recipe is uh, a, a recipe is kind of um, here is showing and here is telling. Um, uh, you know, get your head around this because I think an awful lot of people, at least, can learn to have an instinct once it's made plain, and that's why I do put examples in. Um, to, because an awful lot of people learn intuitively by reading an example 
you know, yeah. where, where just a theoretical thing about showing and a list of things that showing does, you know, doesn't help. So I, that's why the blog post tend to be a bit long because they, you know, it's a <laughs> bit like Nigel I mean, Slater saying, you know, he always gives you two or three different ways to tell when when something is cooked because it will vary, you know, it will be brown and tender to the touch or whatever because, you know, oven times don't always, you know, oven times vary, gas jets vary, you know, that sort of yes. thing. Um, and so hopefully and with examples... Helpful. Yes, I mean, I've with, with particularly with showing and telling. So the thing that, that again that I love about that is often writers are told to show, not tell. Yeah. And particularly, I, you know, I've worked with writers for children, yeah. and often that is absolutely the correct editorial mm. advice in mm. that case. That you are just telling me that something has happened, but I'm not emotionally yes. invested in it. I'm not experiencing yes. it. Yes, but yes. there are other times. I mean, Jane Austen, time after time after time, I find. Is telling me, and I'm yeah. happy with that. Yes, That's what, what suits the well, way that I she think, wants to. I think one thing is come that across. beginners, on the whole, beginners tell when they should show. You yes. know, they tell where showing would work better, and they and the more beginners do that more often than than the opposite. But having said yes. that, I have had you know I have worked with writers who are very very good showers, as it were, and they've learnt or they naturally write wonderfully vivid stuff about the exact you know exact physical environment and all the rest of it mm. but my goodness it takes a long time to get the story going absolutely <laughs> and, yes and you can, they you can, can hit, overdo it you can overdo it and they hit they hit they hit problems of real problems of narrative drive when we get three paragraphs of the fact you know of that are trying to move us on in time when actually what they wanted should have said was that was the year the famine came yes Yes, and right. if you yeah. look at Roald Dahl again, he's yeah. very good at just suddenly yeah. moving this story on. But what, so it. that's what I love about this, this particular one. But I mean, you do it a lot. Is it's not about right and wrong. No, it is about, about right different yeah. tools that each one will be the perfect thing in different scenarios yes. and understanding yeah. the scenarios. But then having having really gone into it for you know even a sort of an hour with students and shown them lots of examples, I get them to to write their own. Um, and then I get them to say, so which bit is showing and which bit is telling? And it is genuinely often difficult, yeah. even yes. after we've really been through it, to know. So it is, there's, there's yeah, a huge amount of practice involved, yes. I think. And huge what I like is that yeah. you, you have a, you know, such a sort of, you give such a nuanced understanding yeah. that it helps people who are sort of panicking <laughs> slightly. To, well, I think, I mean, I think there's it. various things. One is that, you know, when you ha have, have a group of students, some, you know, some of them will be saying, Oh, I've always done that. I didn't know it had a name, you know, because they have, yeah. you know, we were all readers before we were writers and some some people absorb more from reading and and it comes out of their fingers when they start writing quite naturally mm -hmm. and others don't. I mean, if you wanted to talk about talent, I guess that's probably part of, you know, one of the things you could talk about talent. Uh, you could label as talent. But but I also think, actually, it's genuinely, if you look at sharing and telling, we, we use those labels because they label to a difference that most of us recognize actually when you unpack it there's quite a lot of different ways that something can be either being telly or being show you know it's actually quite complicated you know what is it yes. that makes us all feel shown to and what is it that makes us all feel told and and you know hope i mean that's one of the reasons one dishes out photocopies or scans or whatever of of, of good writing because you can then say, you know, you can, you can get into the nuance of it. I mean, I find that's yes. even more true with, with Psychic Distance because actually the, 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 the sort of demo stuff that John Gardner started and I, I have expanded on um, is, in some ways, it's not terribly exciting writing in itself because it has to be kind of 
boiled down to show clearly what we're on about. As soon as you look at real writers, they do work with psychic distance, whether or not they think in those terms or call it that or anything. Um, so but let's it's talk quite, a little yeah. bit about psychic distance then, yeah. because I'm sure a lot of people listening won't know what it yeah. is and will yes. now be slightly panicking that they <laughs> aren't using it and they Don't probably panic. should be. Don't panic. Well, you I, are, by I, the way. Yeah. If you're writing, you're using it. It's just a question yes. of what level of it you're yeah. using. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so yes, t- tell us a little bit yes. about that. Again, yeah. it, it's another um, aspect of this situation. It's another, that it's I, another I point to tool. Towards. Yes, it's another kind of tool, and it starts. It was started where I came across it was in John Gardner's absolutely classic book, The Art of Fiction, um, which is one of the sort of founding texts of creative writing. He he ran the Iowa Writers Workshop that produced people like Raymond Carver. And um, what he's talking about is is how a narrative can take the reader to different, uh, to be different distances from a character, starting from right outside, like a kind of long camera shot, saying, you know, it was winter of 1853, a, a large man stepped out of a doorway, um, to being right, right close in the sort of closest that he pinpoints goes something like snow inside your collar down inside your shoes freezing and plugging up your miserable soul and then he he, he because if you're talking about a spectrum you have to put points on it to help you talk about it he he, he thinks of those as sort of level one far out level five close in and then he has three levels in between and, and the sort of middle level which says henry hated snowstorms is kind of, is where a fiction spends a lot of its time and i can still remember where i was sitting not when I read that paragraph, but when three pages later, I suddenly thought, oh, my goodness, that explains everything. Because I, what I'd realised was that in terms of, if, if you start thinking in terms of how close into a, character's, a character and then how far inside their head am I, it sorts out point of view, because you have to decide which character's head you're inside. It sorts out showing and telling in a way. Because, you know, the in, in this information, this, this neutral far out camera gives you lots of information about where we are and what we are and all the rest of it, which, you know, it, which is quite telly, if you like. Um, I often talk, I often talk not about showing and telling, but about inform, informing and evoking. And yes. It was yes. winter 1853, lots of information. And then as you get closer into this, this character's particular physical and mental experience it becomes more showy it also becomes more subjective it's it's objective to say it's the winter of 1853 unless it's a very tricksy novel we assume that that is the case for the purposes (laughs) of the novel but when you're right close into henry hating the snow down the back of his neck you know another character in that scene say henry's wife jane you know she might be loving it she's had a snow fake like dropping on her nose and it's reminded of when she was young in Austria and she's happy you know so the closer in we are the more subjective we are and readers totally get that they don't know they get it but they do so they yes, know I mean, I think if, it, if you're writing or reading a twisty noir thriller for example there's going to be a lot of that isn't there yeah. and, the, and the writer will be absolutely playing with you yeah. that you're yeah. in this character's head yeah. And starting off assuming that they are what they're experiencing yes. is real yes. and then increasingly wondering if it's real, if, if they're lying to you, if they know what's yes. going on anyway. Yes. Um, yes. Really or, or just that they are with. they are very, you know, this pair of eyes is only going to show us the world in a certain kind of way. And it's going to yeah. maybe judge the world in a certain way. And, and we half get, you know, we get that judgment. But the more subjective it feels because the closer we're in we are to this character, the more we're half conscious that somebody else would see it really differently. 
I've had so people. It's a, fun it, thing to play it's a fun with. thing to play with. I've, I've, I mean, one of the things I've sometimes got people to do is to write. I've on the self-edit course, particularly where we work with it a lot, because such a lot of writing problems are solved by understanding psychic distance and then saying to yourself, "Okay, just here, how far in or out should I be?" And it sorts yes. out how should I sh- should I you know should I be showing or telling? Should I um you know should should this feel subjective so the reader's thinking mm, I wonder if that's the whole story <laughs> or should it be objective so the reader feels solidly okay that's where we are this is what's going on it sorts out voice because the closer in we get this was my other kind of bit huge light bulb moment was to realize that when you're out in the far out levels it was the winter of 1853 a large man stepped out of a doorway is, is the narrator's voice that's a storyteller if you like yeah and the closer in we get to um to henry the more henry's thoughts henry hated snowstorms and then his voice god how he hated these damn snowstorms his voice starts to color it in free and direct style there's another big post on the blog about that which is very helpful i hope for people um and then as we get close in henry's voice takes over the narrative and we lose that sense of the narrator and so what you find is that you, you by making this one decision, how close or in or far out should I be here? All those other decisions, which have felt very kind of messy and complicated, showing and telling, you know, voice, uh, da, 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 suddenly just become one decision. Where should I be? Where should this, you know, where should the narrative be at this point? And oh, all sorts of other things drop into place. Useful. <laughs> yes, I, yes, I agree. And I think it helps to, to understand what we mean when we talk about voice, because, you know, often we, we, we say it's, it's the thing that an agent yeah. or, or an Wants, editor is yeah. looking for. It's, it's the, the one thing that they, they won't want to change. It's either got to be there or not by now. Mm. It probably won't be in your first draft, I find. No. So well, I, I think for a lot then. of the process for first draft for a lot of writers is finding out is what finding the voice it. is. Yes, exactly. Yes, yeah. So it's too much work to change in, in, in something that somebody has submitted on the whole yeah, I yeah. would say because that that's what you that's the sort of nugget of, of well I think it's, you're it's, looking not, for. it's not only that it's too much work it's also that the voice the voice is actually the interface between the reader and the world yeah. that they're reading about Absolutely. and 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 the thing is that you, you can't be grabbed by characters and situations until the novel's been trundling along for a bit and you've had you know the writers had a chance to present the situation you know the characters and yes. their situations and their problems yes. but the voice is there in the first sentence and it's what so makes it's the first you trust human... or not trust exactly. the narrator isn't exactly. it exactly it's to, the to first human connection side. it's the first human connection you make with the narrative is the voice yes and it isn't always the voice of the main character and no. it isn't always the voice of uh, an omniscient narrator no. and it's about the interplay between all of those different voices yes. that you choose and yes. how you choose to make them and how work. you choose it and if you and I think it's very very helpful to think of the narrator even if they're not a person you know having a voice um, in the sense that you know, there's always ten different ways to write write a line, and to think of the narrator as having a take on you know a take on it all and giving it some character, I think it's enormously helpful, um, and it also means that it doesn't have to be a, a narrative in first person with what I prefer to call an internal narrator. It doesn't have to be that for the narrative to be strongly voiced. The narrator themselves, an external narrator in third person, can also have a voice that you want to listen to yeah that you like that, that has a flavor and a character and an energy in itself even before we've gone inside any character's head 
I think one of the, you know, the advice that we would all always give to somebody who says, you know, what, I want to be a writer, what should I do? We would all say, well, read, read a lot, read, read as read, much yeah. as you can. Because, I mean, again, somebody listening to this, I, re I remember I studied, again, I studied a lot of this at, at university and, and, um, and you know, words like, you know, free and direct style sound quite kind of scary as abstract <laughs> things. But and, until you've read a, a book that uses it yeah. a lot and you think, oh, it's that, it's I that. Yeah. that. <laughs> well, exactly. And I've had loads of students who've said, oh, is that what it's called? I've always done that. Yes, exactly. Um, and actually, so, I got a very excited text from my daughter when she was at university. She says, mum, mum, um, I've just Googled free and direct style and you've come in second to Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> that's quite exciting. I still think that is a definite, definite thing I'm very proud of. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, post. all the things that we're, we're talking about are are decisions that, that pre-published writers are making and, and things that they're, they're perhaps struggling with. Yeah. And, they, and they know what they are. It can be really helpful to give them the, these names. And so th then, then we can talk to each other about yes, them and they absolutely. can talk to each other about yes. them. It's, it's, it's this particular thing, which, which we call this, that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm having a bit yeah. of a moment with right now. And then somebody can say, oh, that, this particular writer does that thing yes, extremely yes. well. And then you yeah. can go off and, and explore. Uh, but I mean, for me, the, the only way that I can really absorb it is, is yeah, is having read a good author use yes, it. Yes, yes. And but then... I but you know, also, a little I bit think of plagiarism read, comes in until it yeah, becomes part absolutely. of my style. Yes. Well, and I think, you know, we are, we are all writing off the back of a tradition of writing novels. You know, it, it, yeah. you know, it, 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 it's just is something, you know, it, it, it's evolved ecosystem and, and you, you have to draw on that. I think... I think there's two sorts of reading often. I mean, there's the immersive reading that we all did as children, gobbling it up. And I, you know, we still, I still do that. Um, but there is also, I think the real key is to learn to read like a writer, which actually, again, is is partly a process of separating, not exactly problem finding, but, but separating your experience of a reader and noticing it and then separately saying, how did the writer make me feel like that? What yes. are the yes. words? What are the words and the sentences and the sentence structures and the paragraph structures that have got me to this point of feeling like this? It, and yes, you can then label it and say, oh, yes, look, I can see that, 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 that the writer has, um, you know, got right close in in psychic distance or they've pulled right back out and they're just being incredibly sparse and, and, and minimal. And because I already know these characters and the situation is really fraught my brain is you know it's filling out of this very past prose filling out hugely imaginatively you know how it feels what's going on you know and so you have you know stop and take notice notice how you feel and then work out how the readers how the sorry how the writers doing it because actually that's what you need to do to your own work it's also what you it's one of the reasons that the writing workshop is the kind of central central process of teaching of people learning to write because it's much easier to see this process of what is this writing how is this writing affecting me how is the writer doing that um it's much easier to see it on other people's work you know writing workshops it is isn't it's it? so and much it, it's, easier i find it so fascinating the way with with most of my my students that i've worked, done workshops with over in, in the past and and you know mentored for years it I, I, 
you know, and them to me too, is so difficult with one's own work. And then you get together with a group of people and let's say there's six of us, the other five can instantly see yes. the three big things that yeah. aren't working. Yeah. And you're thinking, um, duh, why didn't and I you're see thinking, that? Duh. Yeah. And it, yeah. yeah. So when I'm, when I'm one of the five, I can see it too. But you know, when it's happening to me, yes. the other five can see it in mine and I, yes. I can't. So it, it can be really really helpful it can to be share I mean I think I think I I for for some years I had a writers group which I put together which was just five or six of us we'd all actually met unpublished online I think I'm the first generation who made a lot of their important writing friendships in writing forums um yes, but we you, were all published about the same amount of time as me I think so my first book came out in 2009 uh yes Mathematics Love came out one? in 2006 Okay. Um, uh, it was it was the novel that I wrote on my MPhil and then uh, Secret Alchemy I wrote for PhD as well as f- to fulfil my contract for headline headline review. Um, but I and and I made I made a writing group of of friends all, all novelists um, all you know published and being published as we went along and that sort of thing. And I think a lot of aspiring writers don't realise that published writers we go on doing that we go on seeking that feedback we go on finding having or finding writing buddies, we go on asking for help. You know, I have, I, yeah. particularly with, with the novel that I tried to write based on my family, um, which was three years of disaster, um, I several times sought out writer-editor friends and paid them, because we all know the value of each other's time, to yes. try and help me sort out this disaster. Okay, um, let's and they, they, they about... couldn't rescue it, but and that was my <laughs> fault, not theirs. But, you know, you got but to we do it. it. So let's talk I about this is not a book about Charles yes. Darwin. Um, yeah. It's a, a book about not being able to write a book, yes. which is a very wonderful, brave, generous thing to do, <laughs> I think. <laughs> did feel quite um, naked when I started deciding to write it, I must say. So I, I want you to, to read uh, at least one passage from it, but um, but tell me a little bit about how you, you came to write it and what you wanted to say. Well, I'd, I'd had this disaster, which was partly because a previous novel hadn't worked out. And my agent and I, you know, were saying, what am I going to write next? And, and for once, I didn't have a novel in waiting, as it were, dying to be written while I finished the previous one. And she suggested writing a novel about my family because what not everybody knows is that my great-great-grandfather was Charles Darwin and as well as him um, he came out of there's a he came out of a great clan of Darwins and Wedgwoods and Galtons which were which were very central to right from the middle of the 18th century very central to the sort of scientific and intellectual life of of England and it also includes composers and lots of writers and uh, all sorts of creative people, poets and so on and I'm, you know, having seen all the people involved, I'm amazed there was anyone left who you're not directly related to who's <laughs> well, being creative. It's Well it's a very, you know, it's a very small slice of, you know, the, the kind of uh, scholarly, intellectual, scientific middle class is, is not very big and and they they kind of they form a village not a physical village but a mental village you know they write to each other all the time thanks partly to the, you know the victorian post and all that sort of stuff and they tend to marry each other because you did i mean charles charles married his cousin emma wedgwood who that who is who i'm named after and yeah. um and you know and one of his brothers married one of one of his sisters married one of her brothers as well. So we are also indecently interrelated. I don't have nearly as many great, great, great grandparents as I ought to, medically speaking. <laughs> um, but but so I, I didn't want to write about Darwin, which is 
you know, Charles himself, which is why the book is called that, because I knew that he's, it's far too well documented. There's no space for novelists when you've got all the letters, several biographies, lots of biographies and books about everybody else. He wrote his own autobiography. You know, no, we were, you and I were talking just now about, you know, the space to go inside real historical figures' heads. The trouble is yes. these bastards, they go inside their own heads and they write long letters and books about what's inside their own heads. You know, so what, yeah, you see, I'm, what, I'm what, so what's a novelist that, yeah. to do? I'm writing about the Queen and bless her, she doesn't do that. Yeah, she does <laughs> so do she's her. leaving me loads of space. Thank but, goodness. But, uh, uh, exactly. And they do. Well, and, and The Secret Alchemy was about, it was about Elizabeth Woodville, who was the mother of the princes in the tower. And, you know, for, for a woman of her time, because she's an elite woman, we know quite a lot about certainly the later half of her life. But you absolutely know nothing about the inside of her head. So that's great. But with these guys, they all do so. And, but, so when my agent suggested my first recoil, I was, no, 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 I'm not doing that. Partly because it felt like, very much like showing off. And we were brought up not to talk, you know, we were brought up that it was showing off to talk about unless somebody asked you. Um, And I'd slightly got over that because obviously it was useful from the publicity point of view when my fiction started coming out. Um, But also it was quite annoying. Um, kind of understandable but I find it quite hard to deal with the fact that quite a lot of the early publicity about me and my work was basically about Darwin you know and there'd be a little note of note about the book coming up which is incredibly exciting when you're a new author in the bookseller or whatever and of that 30 word note at least half of it was about yes she is the great great granddaughter of Charles Darwin (laughs) very little (laughs) about the book and it's like kind of the worst ever case of middle child syndrome so I had lots of mixed feelings about trying to write about my family, but they are an interesting bunch. So I said I'd go in and see what, look at them with a writing point of view and dug around in the family tree, dug out what I already knew, dug out more that I didn't know, and ended up realising that Charles Darwin's grandchildren, which is my grandfather's generation, are a very interesting bunch. Uh, Ray Fawn Williams is in the family tree of that generation, though he's not a Charles descendant. Um, and uh, Francis Cornford, the poet, my great aunt, Gwen Ravera was an artist. My grandfather was a physicist, um, and so on. And I started, and then I realised that I could put a fictional character in there to sort of build the novel on. And yes. it was a disaster. It was a series of disasters. And my poor agent read draft after draft, and she is a fantastic editor, and said, um, "Emma, look, I'm really sorry, but it's really not working." Yeah, this and, fascinates me because yeah. you know you you teach structure and you yeah. teach character and and you teach voice, so <laughs> you you know what the the tools yes. of the trade yes. are, but yes. you couldn't apply them to this thing that you I wanted could. Well, to I do think, I successfully. Think a lot of the problem was exactly this problem that we there was a, too much material about them, and I knew too much about the insides of their heads. I mean, Gwen 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 Darwin's you know love affair with Shakespeare. They were they were very involved with the with the Bloomsbury's who were also remote cousins it has to be said with Virginia Woolf and co um, but also mm-hmm. the, the the circle around Rupert Brooke the neo-pagans and there was a, a you know who also went in for loving in triangles and uh, Gwen wrote a novel about a very lightly fictionalized version of the triangle that she got into with her that ultimately her husband and and Carl Cox who was actually mostly in love with Rupert Brooke and so on um and they wrote letters to each other, and there were bio- there were there were like ten biographies that I had to read. They wrote memoirs, um, and so on. And so every time my writer's fictional brain had set up a situation that would make a good scene, that that felt powerful, that felt interesting, that felt strange and threatening, whatever it was that my 
mm. creative imagination wanted to do, then my historian's, you know, inner critic would say, yes, but she wasn't in France. Or yes, but how do you know that, you know, yes, but you can't do that because um, how, they did, she didn't think like that, whatever. And, and, it, and it was like being censored. It yes. felt like it. I mean, we, you and I were talking earlier about how how, how schools teach, and actually, I, I do remember the point in teaching younger children where they realised that it was very helpful to separate, you know, not to stymie the story writing by saying no, 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 the plural of mouse is mice, but yeah. to separate the correct spelling and the grammar and everything from the stories, um, because actually, if you're worried about teacher telling you you're spelling it wrong, your imagination can't run. Yes, and basically exactly. that was the situation I was in and it went wronger and wronger and it got more and more stressful and I was also extremely busy became extremely busy with work and this novel still wasn't happening and I ended up getting very ill and fetched up in hospital and uh, I, and, and in the end I gave up I, I realized that part of what makes the family interesting if you're interested in intellectual history is 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 the family habit of well, it's, I say the family habit. It's actually it's the scientific and scholarly habit across the whole of the sort of scholarly world, which is about exact information, about getting it right, about not not imagining beyond the the facts allow you to, and yeah. that was what you know that was the sort of mental habit that gets handed down and handed around in 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 scholarly and academic worlds, and that was. It was what made the family interesting and it was what made it meant I could not write it because I couldn't let myself go where I needed to go as a writer. And yes. I thought, and that, and, and that was fine, as you say, because, you know, I do have a reasonable amount of craft and I, you know, I, I, I knew what to do if only I could do it. And also I was very, you know, keen and eager to get help. But I, that was the point at which I realised that I was never going to be able to do it. It was so simply, what we got instead was a book about not being able to yeah, do it. Yeah, and that was the point at which I, and, and then I stopped and I said, right, I'm never going to be able to do it. That's the end of that. I actually, in, because I'm very bad, I'm naturally impatient in most ways, but I'm very, I cannot give up on a project. If I can ever see how it might be made better, I cannot give up until I've given that, you know, better making a go. And yes. I, I actually threw the family out of the novel and thought, I can't quite let go of this. I'm going to try and make this into a thing that walks and talks and quacks like a novel. Um, and it, it, you know, eventually it did, but it wasn't terribly good because, as my agent politely put it, it had had such a complicated genesis. And then I realised <laughs> that one of the things that had confused me was I did want to write about the family, that they are an interesting yeah. bunch, and particularly about creative, creative thinking in the family across science and arts. You know, the the jumps, well, the jump that Darwin made in his head between all the kind of proto evolutionary tools and ideas like Malthus, like, you know, like everything everybody knew about geological time and stuff like that, the jump he made to put those two together to get the mechanism of, you know, the, the better adapted to their environment, survive and produce and the less well adapted die out. You know, yeah. if that's not creative thinking, I don't know what is, because creativity is always about creating, you know, putting things that do exist together and producing something that doesn't or didn't Absolutely. until now. And so... And that had confused me with the novel because when I was crying on friends' shoulders and they'd say, but stop, you know, you're hating it. This is miserable. And I'd say, yes, but it's really interesting. <laughs> and I realised that I wanted to write about that. 
And also I did, you know, I've been blogging since 2007 about writing. And I, as you know, I teach, I've got a PhD in it. Um, I wanted to evoke what writing is actually like. Mm. What trying to get that stuff, what being that spider producing silk from inside you and making a web you know, what it's like to do that and to edit and to get feedback and to survive and to make money and to f- or not make money and to fit it into a life which is having to make money by other ways. And and what it is like to have your work out in the marketplace. And so I thought really, spent a long time thinking about how on earth to, to structure a book. But luckily, this the whole kind of life writing and memoir um, side of the literary trade has got so exciting. And you can you can do such strange and interesting structures compared to what you can do in a novel, unless a novel is extremely experimental. And so I and I just thought, okay, I'm going to sit down and I am going to write it how it seems best to me to write, starting with the process of trying to find something to write a novel about. So there's an awful lot in it about what makes a novel, what makes a story, what are we doing when we read stories, what are we doing when we write stories. And then I'm sure, looking at I'm the sure family. writers must, must, must find that really reassuring that, you know, um, just, just to follow that process. Mm. I mean, I remember, you know, I, I love it when writers write about writing. And I love listening to Aaron Sorkin, for example, and yes. talking about, you know, writing is driving around West Hollywood, knowing that you should be at your <laughs> computer or typewriter <laughs> yes. writing, yes. but just physically not being able to for all yep. sorts of reasons and procrastinating yep. and thinking. And then you get that one idea that will actually make the drive Bang. worth it. And I just thought, yes. that is my head. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for yes. telling me that yes. I am normal. Yes, yes, um, yes. Not yes. that I've ever a... been to West Hollywood. No, but... but there's a place on the far side of the pond in the park, which is, I think it actually must be exactly the right distance for, for walking and the physical exercise to mm. have let go of stuff and that is where I yeah again the creative thing where those two different things that are trundling around in my mind suddenly come together and I think gotcha yeah. that's the one yeah I love those feelings I, feeling. so I wanted you to, to write it to read a little bit mm. out so if you don't mind that would be not fantastic. at all no this is this is from the end of the book when because basically it follows a slightly straightened out path through yeah, exploring the family thinking about the family and talking about them with a view to writing a novel and then and then trying to evoke the novel that I did write, which of course, you know, it will never be published. And yes. then this, 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 this bit comes when my agent has uh, just said it's not working for the second time. And I thought, Oh, bloody hell, you're so right. <laughs> and, 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 and this is what, how it goes. The only way to write is to exist in a state of hope. You have to think that what you want to say is worth saying, and the way you say it deserves hearing that the whole project, however minor, is, as it were, the real thing. And you have to believe that it will be heard, because it's the hope of being read which creates a bubble inside which you can keep going and keep trying to make the piece better. The essential difference between an innocent beginner writer and a battle-hardened experienced writer is that the beginner's only perception of their work is from inside the bubble where the work is the real thing. The experienced writer, on the other hand, deliberately enters that state of hope, while equally deliberately ignoring their parallel knowledge that outside the bubble, this may not turn out to be the real thing at all. Not what they were trying for, not good enough, not saleable enough, not even a little bit of what they hoped it might become. That's why feedback that the writing has failed is a visceral, sometimes excruciating shock. That hope has been assaulted. Feedback, which is a version of no one will buy this, 
is the most explicit destruction of hope that you can have. No, no one will listen. No, you can't speak. No, you will not be heard. The strange thing is that although the bubble depends on hope which the rejection has just destroyed, the only way to start rebuilding it is to ignore your battered heart's honest conviction that this project is dead and make a cold-blooded, unbelieving decision to act as if it's still alive. Back on the horse, with apologies for mixing my metaphors, all I needed to do was find a new plot for the second half which had drive, momentum and thematic coherence. It also needed to demand a darn sight more action from my characters in action. Their problems needed to be urgent and immediate and their efforts to solve their problems needed to make sure that, as the story continued, more and more, and eventually everything that they had or were, was at stake. Also, of course, my new plot needed to be full of Darwin's. So that was quite late in the day, but it actually does sum up. I mean, I'm sure you recognise this, Sophia. Oh, you know, I, I completely you get back it. on the, that the damn horse. Being a writer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, that's that's the way these things get written, and that yeah. that's why, after all the years of not being published, uh, ultimately we do. I mean, I do say to students, so the people who, who are lucky enough to see their their work in bookshops. We're not necessarily the best, but we are the most persistent. We do keep yeah. on getting back on the horse because we can't not, because yes. it's just so visceral. We can't not, and we make we, up. We write in the face yeah. of everything that we know about writing. Now, I, my my last question for you is, is writer's tips. I mean, we've discussed so many, um, but do you have one or two that you like to Well, I think it's very... Give to people? I, I always struggle with the idea of tips because, as, as ever, you know, I could always think of situations where whatever I've just said is a really good idea would be the worst possible thing to do yeah, <laughs> and vice yeah. versa I mean I th- I was asked on Twitter once and ha- went away and had a good think and actually the one I have come up with and interestingly it also is extremely relevant to, to the sort of work that you and I both have done as fellows for the Royal Literary Fund where we support academic writing in universities yeah. is to think in terms of you write your first draft for yourself your second draft for your reader and in the professional sense, your third draft for your agent. And when I was finding this was useful, but trying to turn it into an academic context, I realized that your third draft is for whoever you're trying to persuade. You're trying to, you know, if if it's an essay, you're trying to persuade that your argument is right. Um, You're trying to persuade your tutor to give you a good mark. (laughs) You're trying to persuade your, your um, agent or your editor to, to uh, be swept, you know, to go with the story and believe in it. And you're actually trying to persuade your reader to buy into it. Yes. To, to, to do the willing suspension of disbelief, to say, okay, I know this is a novel, it didn't happen, um, but I'm going to pretend to myself that it did so I can immerse. And so I think that, I mean, that actually is, is probably my, I mean, I would also, other tips, you know, understand showing and telling and learn, you know, practice and learn when to use them. The same with psychic distance, you know, which a lot of people also call narrative distance or, or emotional distance, which are also quite mm. useful labels. Um, understand your tools. And then I would say understand your tools and practice them till they f- fall in your hands like a craftsperson just reaching for the right chisel for a particular yeah, job. Absolutely. Um, and, <laughs> Absolutely. and there's one yeah. I was thinking about recently actually that I, again years ago tiny revelation but I, I was practicing metaphors and things mm. and, and and you know getting my imagery going mm. 
and which I, it doesn't come that naturally to me, I would say. And uh, I had some really great images in there. And somebody said, but they're not relevant. The images aren't relevant yes. to the scene that you're writing. And yes. I thought, but they don't have to be. They're metaphors. That's the but whole point. But they do. And to, but they do. And yeah. so, of course, with me writing about sort of Queen and the Royal Family, if I'm describing a sky, it's likely to be like gunmetal grey or Tahitian pearl. Mm-hmm. But it, um, you know, if I'm describing pink, it's never going to be bubblegum pink because no. that would just yes. pull the reader yes. out. And, it's, it's, and so, yes, yeah. it's th- those little tools are it's, actually, it's really handy to have a, yeah. the range of them I mean, that's centrally, I would actually say that in a way that's kind of a point of view in psychic distance question because if yeah, if yeah. if a character or, or a, 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 particularly with maybe with the royal family sort of taking the, the royal family as a kind of collective character you know if we are mostly in their headspace and mental you know how they construct their world then even when you haven't if you're not particularly in any one of those characters heads you're still in that world and as you say that world is conceived and transmitted through language that makes sense yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, one thing you, 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 you notice writing historical fiction, for instance, is that an enormous proportion of the, of, of the population has, has naval experience. You know, enormous number of our metaphors yes. and our phrases come from, come from the Navy because such a high proportion, you know, and if it wasn't the Navy, it was if the fact that the easiest transport was boats. So everything went by yeah. boat if it possibly could and so on. And so, you know, I, one of the things I do when I'm developing a character is I very often don't know much about what they look like or, you know, or, or what kind of clothes they wear beyond, you know, the necessary, necessary just historical knowledge. But yeah, where do they get their metaphors from? You know, what field, of their, what the, where's their figurative language? Um, oh, that's a really what, good, what's the, really good know, <laughs> What stuff is their figurative language come from? Yeah, um, I think that's a good way to end, Emma. Um, yeah, it'll, it'll give people something to think about, <laughs> I hope. Um, gosh, we've talked for such a long time. It's been uh, such a pleasure. Well, I, I knew it would be. Fun. Thank you so much for asking <laughs> me to. It's great fun to talk to, talk to it. I, I, I always hope that this is not a book about Charles Darwin, particularly would sort of start conversations with writers um, uh, about, you know, what is this strange thing that we all do. <laughs> so it's lovely to have a good yeah. conversation about it. Well, thank you, a million. Um, and um, hopefully we'll get to do this again sometime. I hope we will. Thanks very much indeed, <laughs> Sophia. <laughs> Cheers then. Bye. I'd like to thank Christopher Pett for editing and producing this episode of Pre-Published. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. You can also join us on Twitter at Pre-Pub Podcast and find me at my children's books website, which is sophiabennett.com, or my adult crime series website, which is sjbennettbooks.com.